tonight. We have Carolyn Wu with us. Just a little bio of hers. She recently retired from her position of President and CEO of Catholic Relief Services, the official international relief and development agency of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. Previously, she was dean of the top-rated Mendoza School of Business at our neighbor, University of Notre Dame, giving up tenure there to serve the poor and vulnerable through CRS in 2012. In 2015, Pope Francis invited Wu to the Vatican to help present his encyclical, Laudato Si. And our talk tonight is Dreams and Expectations, Are We There Yet? And as you may have noticed, we have a slightly different setup than usual tonight. We're doing an interview with questions on this topic, and then Dr. Carolyn will be giving her responses to the questions. And then obviously we'll also have time for questions that you guys submit at the end of the night. So give it up for Dr. Wu. So Dr. Wu, we just heard your very impressive uh, resume um, that uh, allows you to speak on so many different topics. Um, but the first question we wanted to ask you is, when you were a young adult, did you envision yourself building a career in higher education um, and humanitarian aid? Is, is When you were about our age, is that where you thought the direction you would be going in? Um, I would say, let's go back earlier than your age. Uh, when I was going to college, I had no idea what I would become. I just had one goal, and that is I needed my education. And I needed my education because um, I was part of an immigrant family. My parents left China, uh, first because of World War II, then because of communism. Uh, they have no safety nets. Um, my father was quite successful at different points of his life, uh, but quite unsuccessful at various points, and he also had a very big gambling habit. So even when I was 13 and 14, I felt sort of the frailty, uh, the lack of security of my family. I knew that I wanted to be sort of part of the solution because we are a Chinese family. As my father reminded us that we don't have social security, our children uh, our social security. So I was always very worried. I think by the time I was 13 years old, I was a basket of worry. Uh, we had a very competitive uh, education system in Hong Kong. We had to take public exams. So my goal really was just to be able to get an education, to get a job. Um, otherwise, the other way that a woman comes into money is to marry rich. I <laughs> didn't think I have the temperament nor the looks to go marry rich. Um, but uh, so that was a, a goal, and I didn't really have any money to go to college either. I was able to raise one year of tuition uh, to go to Purdue University, and uh, fortunately, scholarships carried me through, but I had no big goals. My goals was not great success. Uh, my goal was just to be able to get the type of education that would allow me to take care of my family, which needs a lot of help. So never. Um, before I was a, a dean, I never anticipated myself to be a dean. Uh, before I was put in my first administrative position, which is to manage the MBA program at Purdue, I never saw myself in that light. Um, I never sought the deanship of a business school. 
Um, I never sought to be the CEO um, of CRS. So none of those was in my game plan. Thank you. Um, that leads into kind of our second question, where we're all young adults and we can envision the person that we want to be in 20 years, but we all recognize that there are many different ways to get there. How did you make the crucial decisions that got you from where you were as a young adult to where you are now? So I didn't really have any sense when I was 18 what life would be like when I'm 38. I didn't have a sense that when I was 26, what I would be like uh, at 46. Uh, when I was 30, I have children, and I have a sense of being a mother And you know, when they turn 18 and 22. So to be honest, um, I didn't have sort of like a goal. In five years, I would be this. In 10 years, I would be this. Except that when I started as a professor, you know in seven years, you have to get tenure. Um, and then after seven years, you have to go for full professorship. So I was more paged by sort of the work that I've chosen to do and the parameters associated with that. I never said by the age, how old was I? 38 years old, I would be directing an MBA program. Or that by uh, 43 years old, I would be the dean of a business school. Never thought that way. But because... Um, because it was important for me to do well the job that I was given for several reasons. One is for security. As you can tell, security is really one of my biggest sort of um, priority. The other one was also the sense that when people are counting on you, to never let them down. I think that was very important for me. And it was really for those two reasons, um, particularly the second one, don't let people down. Um, don't do a job by its job description, but when you're in a job, you kind of know um, what completing a job really is like. I think because I did that, those jobs keep coming. Um, and so, uh, just like I said, as a faculty member, you have to get tenure. When you're running the MBA program, there's a set of things you have to do. As a dean, certain things. Um, I never anticipated going into international development because I don't know anything. I didn't know anything about international development. My first year, I carry a map of Africa with me every time. I didn't even know all the countries. Um, and today, I cannot name all the capital of the African countries. Um, and I would carry the map with me. So no, I never anticipated um, to be the CEO of, um, of CRS. And I'll tell you a funny story. My first week, my predecessor, took me around to introduce myself to and who this person is. And we were in the White House. We were meeting the National, National Security Council staff. Um, and uh, clearly, I didn't know anything. But my predecessor, Ken Hackett, who was the ambassador to the Vatican in the last four, five, four years, um, he started a conversation. He started a conversation with the NSC on the Blue Nile and whether we should be dropping food in the Blue Nile, what are the risks, and why that is necessary. And I have no idea where the Blue Nile is. I have no idea. And I'm sitting there, and I said, I didn't know the Niles come in color. <laughs> and I thought, why didn't I pay more attention when I was in fourth grade? Um, and I reach into the Bible, Moses being left at the banks of the Nile, 
you know, like did they mention any particular color then? <laughs> so it's the Blue Nile in Egypt. <laughs> you know, um, had no idea, but I knew enough to not ask that question. That that would really shock the NSC in terms of why this person is sitting across the table to take over from Ken Hackett, who spent all his life since he was 22, and by then he was in his 60s in development. So I excused myself to the bathroom. I uh, call up Safari to find out where is the Blue Nile. <laughs> and along the way, too, um, my husband also started two businesses that had to close. You know, nowadays you talk about Silicon Valley and how people just start businesses and then they fail, they move on, they fail. Well, that was 30-some years ago, and we didn't know that that was the norm. That's how things work. Um, in those days, uh, it was the idea that you start a business and you would be successful. Well, we took two tries, and we weren't successful um, in that way. And that was quite a lot of learning to do, too. So um, I would say my life's path, where it ended, absolutely did not come from planning. You talked a lot about the pressure that you were under like as a teenager and in, and in college or even in young adulthood. Um, I think that most young adults in this room can, can relate a little bit to that pressure and um, being so busy uh, trying to make the right choices for their life, trying to take care of themselves or even um, other people. And um, I think a lot of people in our generation are at risk for being overwhelmed by all the things that, that we're also under pressure with. So how did you prioritize um, making choices um, between something like adoration or service work or building relationships versus building a career and some of those things that um, under a lot of pressure can be really different to de or really difficult to decide between? Yeah, I think that priorities um, are not as hard to define as people think. There are things that pull you. Now, there is a thing about whether your priorities are the right priorities or whether they're healthy priorities um, or whether they are priorities that live yourself up or lift other people up. But, you know, there are certain pulls in your life. So when I was in the middle on a tenure track, you know what the priority is. Uh, when we had young children, uh, we had children, two boys in three years, that presents its own sort of demands um, and relatives. So I would say, you know, in, there are five things, I think, in life you have to balance. Um, one thing is work. One thing is prayer. One thing is sleep. Uh, one thing is exercise. And one thing is fun. Those are the five things. And I would say I never could do more than two really well, and the other three is sort of like, you know, at the margins. Uh, but I think that there are these points in your life where you have a parent who is very sick. That presents a set of priorities. Um, if you are in the middle of paying off your debt, um, college debt, there's a set of priorities. You know, and those priorities have implications for how much you give to charity and how much time you have. But I would say the key is always to know um, where your major priorities are and what are the reasons for those priorities and whether those priorities um, are healthy and whether they align with sort of um, the sense of God in your life. So for me always, um, in fact today they did a photo shoot for an article that was being done. And they asked me where do I want my picture to be taken. Um, and I said I want it to be taken in a chapel. And the reason I look back was 
when you talk about how do you make time for adoration, it's like eating. How do you make time for eating? Because, you know, it's part of your life and it's important. You find time for eating. It's just sort of intuitive. But when I was uh, high school and primary school, I was educated by the nuns, the Maranoff sisters. And by the time we were 16, 15 or so on, part of our lunchtime, we would go sit in chapel for 10 minutes. And most of my friends are not Catholic. In Hong Kong, it's maybe 1% Catholic. So, but somehow we'll get this, we, by then, I think the nuns must have done a really good job. We would always take 10 minutes and go to chapel. And we were all full of worries, because when you were immigrant children, there are many worries. Um, and, you know, but somehow we were these, you know, 16, 17-year-old kids, girls, you know, giddy and silly and all those things. And, but there are those 10 minutes where we all go to chapel and feel like a burden is lifted from us. Think about how powerful that is. That is not like, have I prayed today? And did I give God his time? It was that sense of sort of like, mm, better go sit and just let God know what's going on in our lives and to, to get help. I never tried to serve God in my early days. I was too busy asking for help. Um, and then when I went to Purdue, I was so new. Um, I was a foreigner. I was, um, you know, a Chinese girl from Hong Kong ending up in West Lafayette, Indiana, you know, like, um, and didn't understand the culture and so on. But um, the church, St. Thomas Aquinas Center, was right in the middle of campus, and it was open all night. So it became, I went to daily mass, and sometimes at night when I go back to the dorm, went back to the dorm, I would stop at the chapel. I would just let God know, well, today this is what worked out well. This didn't work out well. I'm really homesick. I think I've left some of my skin of my knees on those pews. Um, but it was not so much a duty as it was a sense that this is my home uh, where I get to sort of like debrief um, and talk to God and talk to someone and that someone just happened to be chapel. So I developed that um, when I was new and helpless in some ways. And I only had one year of tuition. I have to talk to God about where would the rest of the tuition come from. Um, I still remember the day uh, when I was to get the notice about the scholarship, whether I would get it or not. Um, I spent the last hour before getting that information in chapel. And, uh, and talk to God and say, why is this so hard? Why is it not so hard for others, but so hard for me? Um, and so that happened, carried through um, uh, on and off. And actually, it was at a mass during Purdue where it became clear to me I should go to Notre Dame. Uh, Notre Dame was calling, and I had no desire to go. That There was no rational reason to come to Notre Dame, <laughs> but it was at a mass. So when I came to Notre Dame, you know, there are many chapels, and eventually, not very far into it, we put a chapel um, into the business school itself. Um, and I would start my day every day in chapel. And it was really the most important part of my day, not for, I don't know if it's for a spiritual reason, but I bring a cup of coffee, and I love the feel of hot coffee and your hands around it and the aroma of that coffee. So I would just bring a cup of coffee and sit in chapel, I tell God, I said, well, 
today is really hard. I have this meeting. I need help. <laughs> and yesterday, I asked for help for that meeting, but you must not have been there because I completely <laughs> lost myself. I said things I shouldn't have said. I was not patient. I went off a different directions. You weren't very helpful then. Okay, today we have to start all over again. Um, and, uh, and I would stop at the grotto. Usually I drive in and stop at the grotto first, and I would say, Father, Son, Holy Ghost, and Blessed Mother, this is a work day. We all have to show up today. Um, and, and so I, I knew I had a tough job. Coming to Notre Dame was not an easy job, um, and what was expected. So even when I interviewed with the provost at that point, I actually didn't interview. He came to talk to me. And I said, you know, there are three people who need to do this job. I have to show up, and I told him, the provost, that he had to show up and support this, and we need God's help. So for me, it was never like, um, did you leave time for prayer? It was really part of my, it's like drinking water. Um, just, you just, it's just something that you need. Um, so I think I, that became so real, particularly when I started bringing coffee into the chapel, and I did the same at CRS, which also has a chapel. It was a sense of being at the kitchen table, of God. You know how kitchen tables is the place where everything happens, right? You could get them in the morning, good luck for your test, and you know, what do you have to do again? And do you anything tough coming on today or whatever it is? You know, very brief, almost choppy conversation sometimes in the morning, more sustained conversation in the evening. But the kitchen table is sort of where life happens. Uh, where, you know, in many ways, um, how we process our day with each other is at the kitchen table. So I just really developed this sense that chapel, particularly with my coffee, is sort of like I'm in the kitchen um, of God, um, and we're going to have these conversations. Um, and I actually asked my spiritual director one time, I said, I actually am afraid of doing this. I never do this in other people's chapel. Like, you know, in my job, I'm in a lot of dioceses and bishops and so on and so forth, I never bring in my coffee cup just because I somehow something told me that I don't know if that's acceptable. So I really, whether this is sort of like sacrilegious or, you know, and I talked to my spiritual director. I said, do you think it's sacrilegious to bring your coffee into chapel? And he told me the story that there was a saint in the Middle Ages who prays when she is darning socks. You know, and I need to find out who that was. She would sit in front of fireplace and darn socks and just talk to God. So the bottom line really is, what is prayer anyway? I think that, um, how do I, quote unquote, make time for prayer? I think is the, a sense of whether God is in your life or not. Is God real? Do you really feel sort of, when he said, when two or three are gathered in my name, do you really feel it? Do you feel like when he said, I will never abandon you? that that's real. Perhaps sort of by the time I was 18 and a freshman at Purdue, I had nothing else to hold back, hold on to, except that, do I really believe that God is with me on this journey? Like, you know, like, ooh, because I, I can't plan. I can't see past, you know, this semester, that semester. Um, and I think it's that sense of, is, is God in your life? Does he have your back? Um, and whatever happened to you, are you totally alone in this? Or is God with you? And I would say one of the things I learned about, you know, being a worry wart um, as a kid and so on, 
Um, in some ways, I don't think all of that worry is bad, particularly if it's a worry that comes from the love of family. But, you know, it takes perspective and it takes years is to recognize that actually you were never handling this all on your own. It didn't just depend on me. Right? Sometimes you feel the burdens. It just completely depended on you. Well, no, it doesn't just completely depend on you that there is God in your life. Um, and along the way, you know, of course, there are disappointments. God is not a magician. Uh, God is not your butler, right? I mean, I want this. Oh, it's delivered. Um, and, and that there are disappointments and so on. But that actually in those disappointments are ways of depending on God in a way that never happened. Um, so I would say, you know, it's really the adoration of that prayer, whatever it is, is really, if you have that sense that God has your back, um, it's as simple as that, that despite, you know, how things come out and they're not aligned with your own ideas, one of my priest friends, Father Paul Doyle, some of you know from Notre Dame one time, cited, he said, um, when you don't get what you ask for, it's because God has something better in mind. Um, and the faith tells us God never wants anything but the very best for us. Um, and so I think that's how everything comes together. Um, just, and just like I said, balance, there is very little balance. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, work um, comes first, has always come first for me. Um, I make sure I have some time for prayer. Exercise is the next thing to go. Uh, and uh, fun is not always there, actually. So, but that's why I also seek my retirement. Um, honestly, I, I'm, because I know that absence of balance and that it's hard to find it with any situations, but that you need to shift your situations. Um, you know, because your life changed. Uh, at a certain point, um, before you have children, before you have other responsibilities or obligations, you could devote yourself to other things. But so at this point, as people ask me, first of all, I need a lot of deferred maintenance. You know, my knee is not working well and so on and so forth. But I tell people I have been a Martha all my life. Just, and now I need time to be Mary. I mean, I just need time to sit around. <laughs> I need some time to sit around um, at the foot of Jesus which means that that usually is time to sit around with people, um, with people just really being able to engage, to um, participate um, in people's life stories and what's going on in their life, because usually my time is so um, structured. You know, when I was in my job, I would tell my secretary, my appointments should be structured in 15-minute slots. Um, if we need to go to 30 minutes, that's okay. If we need to go beyond 30 minutes, that could, got to be a good reason. So, so you could imagine that type of, of structuring would not allow you to really sort of be Mary. you just all mother. I know very long answers. <laughs> <laughs> no, you, you definitely touched on what our, our next question was because you talked about that disappointment sometimes when you don't get what you ask for in prayer. And so 
the, the way that we were thinking about it is that sometimes we have those moments where we're so sure that God is calling us in a particular direction, but then something happens and this circumstance causes the door to be shut in that direction completely. And there's that disappointment where you don't really understand why what you felt was your calling or your vocation um, is not going to come out that way. So I don't know if you have anything else to expound upon what you already shared. I know earlier you brought up how your husband tried to start these businesses, and that was I'm sure that was a joint effort for your entire family. So how did your family handle the, the disappointment when they did not go as, as planned? Well, so the boys really didn't know enough. In fact, the first venture failed. My husband left his job the month that my second son was born. Um, and it was a few months before the market collapsed on software ventures. This was in 1987. So the boys really didn't know, but my husband and I knew. Um, and it was a difficult time. It was not so much difficult spiritually, uh, but it was difficult because we've never failed. <laughs> Um, and we had a friend, very good friend, who actually asked my husband and asked, now do you need to get unemployment aid? And I remember being really offended. Uh, and this was out of pride uh, more than anything else. And you have to really sort of check those thinking and grow from it and said that person didn't mean anything bad. We, it only offended me because of my pride. It was not because of his line. And along the way, we also determined that, um, you know, there were other people who invested in these businesses that we would pay them back um, before we would, um, you know, we were still young at that point. So we thought it was important that I had a very good job, that we would pay people back before we start our own savings. Um, and of course, as a couple, those are the moments actually that allow you to grow together. I remember we had a lot. Um, beautiful wooded lot, five acres with trees and so on and so forth. And I remember talking to my husband. I said, do you think we should just sell this lot? Um, and he said, no, because that's where he would go and take his walk and process everything. And he said, you know, and it's not a lot of money anyway. He said, um, this is a place of solitude for me, and it is a place of hope. It is a place where I could imagine something happening. And so as a couple, I'm a very pragmatic person. You know, but the first thing I would do is sell this lot, and later on, you know, you could go buy another lot. But for him, um, there was this symbolic um, value and also a place of peace and solitude and dreaming um, and healing. Uh, and so to learn to sort of respect that and coming out of it, but I want to go back. I meet a lot of people, um, my own students I've taught for decades. Um, and they would say, oh, I want to go serve God, but unfortunately I have all this debt and I need to find a job. I'm not, therefore can't go serve God. Or, you know, CRS, every year for our 40 fellowship positions, we get 800 applications from young people. And they said, oh, I'm so disappointed. This is, I wanted to serve God, and, you know, I just want the chance to serve God. And my response actually is that I think that we have too narrow a sense of what God wants from us. Uh, that only this path, only when you're reaching out to the very poor are you serving God. Um, I think we serve God in all ways possible. 
Um, I'm now really enjoying myself in retirement, I have to say. And I feel so much guilt. I just feel like, oh, I'm not serving God. I'm not serving the poor. Um, I'm actually indulging in totally frivolous things, um, which, just like I said, fun is not a part of my life. And I'm about to take piano lessons and um, I'm, you know, sewing lessons. I'm certainly not spending my energy all thinking about, you know, the big refugee questions and so on. I need a break, actually. I'm involved, you know, in the various advocacy. So I said, God, I'm so sorry. I'm not serving you right now. And then I caught myself. I said, what are you talking about? What are, why, why do you think this way? What is it that you think God wants? Um, is it that if you don't, if um, Abraham didn't offer Isaac, I mean, do you think he wants that? That everything is about sort of like chopping a, a part of yourself off. You know, here is my arm, God. You know, have I given enough? This is my arm. I don't think that that's what God wants. I think God's whole message is about love. Um, and it's like a parent's love. Uh, the parent is not looking for return sacrifice. A parent is looking for how that particular son or daughter flourishes, um, grow fully into his or her potential, love well, um, be holy in not, not just piety type of ways, but have a sense of God and how to align that. And that joy, joy is so important in our lives. And can we love other people? Sometimes when you're all busy working, you know, yes, you give a lot of your effort, but you can become actually uh, impatient, overwhelmed, resentful, bitter. <laughs> you know, so I've seen a lot of people in the service industry where they're bitter. And I almost want to say, mm, too long. Uh, but I think when we say, you know, this is my vocation. God was calling me to this, and now I can't do this. I'm therefore not serving God, or therefore I'm not pursuing my vocation. I think that some of that thinking is good. That's the type of contemplation um, and the type of reflection which we are called to. But I think to put God's desire for us and plans for us in our own sort of conception is dangerous. So I just want to say that. It, to actually think of every day and every way, every interaction, the way that you live, all of those things are ways that you could honor God. Uh, earlier you mentioned that you remember um, distinctly in, um, after Mass one day at Purdue, you felt the call to go to Notre Dame, which was um, a little bit unexpected for you. Um, could you talk a little bit about that or your call to when you um, decided to leave Notre Dame for Catholic Relief Services? And um, what did that feel like? Was it difficult for you to accept? Or um, what are some ways that we can learn from that to, to be more open to God's call in our lives? Yeah. So I don't think God's calls are particularly subtle, to tell you the truth. Um, for two reasons. I think God needs a lot of help in this world. Yeah, really. We are the laborers for Christ. And secondly, I think God wants us to sort of flourish. That's, that's his dream for us. Um, and so he will help us get to those points. So you don't have to worry too much. So the thing about Notre Dame. I was happy at Purdue. I was um, an associate provost. I was being groomed to be provost, if not a Purdue of the Big Ten. 
And there was Notre Dame calling to say, okay, would you be the dean of the business school, which in Korea sense could be sort of like, I'm already beyond that. Um, and the Purdue Business School was doing much better than the Notre Dame Business School, actually. So I'm not going to a stronger schools in terms of the business school. And at Purdue, I think we have more Catholics than in Purdue than in Notre Dame. So Notre Dame, out of about 12,000 students, 10,000 undergraduate, there are 8,000 of the undergraduates are Catholics, and then maybe another 2,000 of the, so maybe 10,000 Catholics at Notre Dame. Well, Purdue University, when I went, already had 10, in 72, already had 10,000 Catholics. In 1997, I would say probably 12 or 13,000 Catholics. Uh, the Newman Center there was very vibrant. So there was not one dimension why I should leave Purdue. Um, and it was a school that gave me all my support, you know, from my freshman to my PhD year. It paid for all my tuition except for the first year. And it really sort of also mentored me into a career. So I had no reason to come, just zero reason to come. Um, and the boys also didn't want to come. Um, I remember them being, we were at a football game, and I'm not even into football, Notre Dame football. And the two boys who were quite young, they were third and sixth grade, said, Mom, I, we want to leave because Notre Dame just wants us to move, and we don't want to move. So, but one day I went to Mass, as usual, at St. Tom's. I don't even remember what the readings were, uh, but I walk out of it. It was as clear as that daylight that I was staying at Purdue for the wrong reasons, that it was comfortable, um, that I actually was very much nurtured by the Marinard sisters in Catholic education, and I know what business education is, and I actually do know what Catholic business education should be about, uh, because when they came in and made me talk to them about what Catholic business education is, there were actually thoughts that came out. Um, not that I was thinking about this every day, because that was not one of my relevant issues, but somehow it came. And when I walked out of Mass, it was very clear. Um, I remember calling my husband, and I said, oh, no, I think we are supposed to go to Notre Dame. Um, that there is something that I am to do there, um, and that we are staying at Purdue for the wrong reasons. Um, I said, okay, we'll go for three years, and then we'll come back to this. And I said, the boys really don't like the idea. And David said, we will make it work. If this is the right thing to do, we will make it work. And uh, so we came and we stayed for the next 13 years, 14 <laughs> years. Um, and along the way, there were different points to return to um, the Big Ten, uh, to go into senior administration. Uh, but I just felt like the job was not done. Um, and at first, when I came, I said, Notre Dame knows what is Catholic. I know what is business education. It won't take long. Well, and it turned out that we had to define what is Catholic business education? What should that be all about? Um, and so it took 13 years. Um, and I signed my letters when I was at Notre Dame always, yours in Notre Dame. I actually take that very seriously, um, what that meant, uh, what that meant in terms of me, uh, what that meant in terms of mission and fidelity to that mission. So I was happy doing this, and then the business school became number one um, in the country in a Business Week poll. 
two years. At first, we were number three, then we were number something, number seven, and then we were number two. And I remember the year when we were number two. You know, it was the end of that year. A new ranking was supposed to come out. And I prayed to God. I said, I know we won't be number one. We're probably going to be number two. We'll never be number one because there are all these big-name schools. Um, and, and I actually made a bargain with God. I said, with the Blessed Mother at the grotto, please don't make it fall below five. <laughs> Maybe seven is the lowest we can go because otherwise the alumni will all get out of whack. You know how Notre Dame alums must win. They must win at everything. So I said, oh, please, please, please save me. Please don't go below five. Don't go below seven. That was my prayer for that day. So the way that Business Week releases rankings is torturous. It's terrible. The way they count from number 50 and number 49. And then at number 40, they take a rest and take questions and, you know, like to generate, you know, drama and whatever, like Trump said, you know, were you surprised by my pick of the whatever it is? So, so that's kind of like this marketing world. And then they count again. And I said, I'm not going to be there. I'm not going to be tortured, you know, standing in front of that computer, you know, watching for where we would be at the 50. So I went to Mass, which is what I did too when I had to find out my, about my scholarship at Purdue. I went to Mass instead of go to the office first. So I went to Mass, and then Mass was over, so 5.15 Mass, so by now it was close to 6 o'clock. I went to the sacristy in the Basilica, and Father Paul Doyle was, you know, uh, unvesting by that time, or divesting, no, unvesting. <laughs> but um, at that time, I said, and he's such a good friend, he was the chaplain of the college, I said, Father Paul, I'm going to turn on my iPhone, and I might cry, and you would be the only one who sees this. Uh, but I needed to sort of deal with this in my own way before I go back to the college. And I said, it won't be good news. At best, it would be number two, but it could be much worse. I turned on the phone, and there was a message that says, we're number one, come back to party. <laughs> in the subject line, like, I said, Paul, can you read this? You know, are they kidding me? You know, just because they could, my staff, they could up, be up to kidding me, you know, like, <laughs> no, you know, how people do this. So he read this, and I said, you know, let's read the message in there, because this was just a headline. And I was just floored that we were number one. So he said he was going back to Corby to tell the priest. And I said, I'm going to go to the grotto and talk to the Blessed Mother. Because that morning I started by bargaining. Please, you know, don't let it go too far. And if it goes too far, you better be there to pick me up and help me. I, you know, dealing with this mass number of alums is just, you know, not fun. Um, and uh, uh, so this happened. And, you know, I really always could attribute it to the Blessed Mother. I really do. Um, and, of course, I had this idea that we are Catholic schools, we would never be number one. I, I don't know why, you know, kind of like part of the reason is not that we're not good enough. These polls are very random, and there are a lot of very big-name schools. But the thing that I had in mind was that, no, 
the Blessed Mother wouldn't want us to be number one because then we would get a big head. <laughs> All right? Because as Catholics, that's not the way that we are honored, right? There's this sort of, you know, ratings and da-da-da-da-da. So I had pegged the Blessed Mother in a certain way um, and said that's not what God wants from us, worldly glory. That's not whatever it is. Well, it was worldly glory, but along with it also came a lot of responsibilities, right? What does the number one business school, which is Catholic, say to the world? How does it act? Um, so there was a set of responsibility. So I just want to say that one truly was like, um, like I never intended to come here. I never intended to stay. I never thought we would be number one. And then the serious thing happened. I had nothing to, just like I said, I never studied international development. I don't even like to read about what is happening in Somalia or West Africa somewhere with the rebel groups. I couldn't keep them straight. But again, this is what happened. Um, I was on the board. I was a board member. And then um, my term ended, my six-year term, two terms ended. I was on the search committee. I missed a meeting, and I called the chair, Bishop Thomas of Montana. I said, hey, it's George. I'm sorry I missed the meeting. Uh, can you fill me in? And he said, well, we're glad that you missed the meeting because we think you should be a candidate. Um, and I thought it was really funny because, you know, in a lot of searches, they need to show that there are women and minorities in the search. So I thought they wanted me as a minority gender candidate which I generally don't play those type of things, but I said, oh, Sierra. Then I was just kind of joking with him. I said, oh, yeah. I said, if they ask you to be a candidate, and you know as much as I do, well, what would you do? I thought it was really funny. And he said, Carolyn, you asked me what I would do? I would get down on my knees, and I would pray. And he said, we are serious. We're not handing you the job. There is a full interview process. There were over 400 applicants for the job. And he said, we're not handing you the job, but we're asking you not to say no. We're asking you to be open. And what I would do, I would get down on my knees. OK. <laughs> um, and that was the beginning of one of the most unlikely appointment. Um, do I now know why this strange person who is a business school dean and work in the corporate sector ended up at CRS, which is one of the really unbelievable organizations that serve 100 million people in over 100 countries? As I look back, you know, God knows what he's doing, and God has a sense of humor. And fortunately, God doesn't work without boxes. And I think the key really is, wherever you are, try to be as joyful as possible. Try to do the best job you can. Don't let people down. Um, try to be uh, compassionate as much as you can be. Um, and don't worry too much. I think wherever you are meant to be, God will lead you there. The fact that you are here wherever you are today, there is wonderful reason, wonderful work. Um, wherever you are, you are really the presence of God. You can reassure the world that this is a world where people can really love each other. Um, that's all. I think that's the biggest job. 
is really to help people understand that people do love each other and people have the capacity to love each other because as we know, that capacity comes from the divine. Okay, we had one time for one last question. Um, so I think people have got, gotten a little bit more familiar with Catholic Relief Services if they weren't before. Um, and so we were just wondering if, with your professional experience, um, if you could speak a little bit on how you think young people, um, especially young adult American Catholics, um, could respond or should respond to the refugee crisis that um, you are much more experienced with than, than we are. Well, I would say clearly the answer is um, our hospitality to the refugees. You know, you know all the teachings from the Bible, um, from the uh, Jewish people who themselves, God reminded them, they too were uh, refugees at one time and how God um, took them and, and moved them out of um, Egypt. And that therefore, so that the hospitality to strangers and to refugees are embedded, you know, from the Jewish tradition into the gospel you know, the Good Samaritan, Matthew 25. So we know what our teachings are all about um, and what is the right position to be for. But I think the work to be done here is how do you, how do you give weight to that particular moral position? And I think there are multiple things to do. The first one is it can't just stay in the head. It can't just stay in the head that this is what, the Bible tells us it's the right thing to do. I think for it to get to the heart, you have to know the refugees. Uh, they are in your community. So Pope Francis always said, encounter and dialogue. You know, that we have to sort of have personal relationships. We have to have sat at the same table, listen to their stories, look into their eyes, um, have an appreciation of sort of how human they are, and how much we are all in this family wanting the same things. So I said beyond the understanding of that moral teaching that comes from scriptures, number one is let it go be below just thinking into encounter. That is very powerful. The second thing I would say is that I think it's easy to demonize the people who disagree with you. You can say they're small-minded, they're selfish, they're fearful. Um, I think we could uh, use names, and I think that is totally unproductive, um, uncalled for, and unjust. Um, I think that uh, a lot of people are fearful of refugees. They're resentful, actually, of refugees. It does come from very real fears, number one. And number two, across the world, actually, was driving this whole nationalism, is that across the world, um, livelihoods, wages, have actually become very stagnant. Um, in the U.S., wages uh, for the last 18 years has stayed at a real point of $56,000 to $58,000. Across the 28 most developed, wealthiest countries, um, wages have actually slipped, real wages, for the majority of people. Um, there are people very angry at globalization because they thought the jobs went somewhere else. But actually, one big driver is automation, um, and so across the world, what we're seeing is people are seeing a lot of the loss of jobs. Um, they, they attribute this to other people coming in. 
Um, there's also a much greater increase. There's a lot more violence and access to arms than there have been ever before. So, and of course, the shooting by terrorists is the most pronounced, even though refugees are not the terrorists. Um, in fact, the Cato released a study that says refugees in the last 30 years, these are not just immigrants, but refugees, have not been responsible for any terrorism crime. And that to be attacked by a refugee in this country is like one in 3.6 billion chances. So, but, but those fears um, are grounded in something which is not going well in people's lives. Um, whether it is the, the, the sense that their own lives are not moving forward, um, whether it is the perception of violence being caused by a particular set of people. Um, and so I think that when we deal with people who disagree with us, if we just merely call them names and put them aside and say these are uninformed, unenlightened people, I think we have shortchanged where those people are themselves. Um, and I think it's really important to be able to listen to their plight. Um, it is really important to understand sort of there are drivers um, that we need to look into. This group is probably a professional group, all probably doing fairly well. Um, a lot of people in the world are really stuck. Um, and I think this whole idea of um, not just demeaning and writing people off because they disagree. But the third thing I really think young people should do, and this is really necessary, is uh, advocacy. Uh, having done the work that I have, government listen to the people who, who call in. Uh, don't write a letter, don't send an email, you have to call. Um, and in my most recent column that would come out um, in a Sunday Visitor, I actually give the number for the capital. You just dial that number and say, what is your zip code, 46614? Do you want to uh, talk to the House of Representatives or the Senators? And then they direct you. And you have to call and say, I object to this bill that, you know, defund whatever it is. And they put a check mark. And at the end of the day, they would say, what are the three biggest um, issues that people have called in on? You have to do this in a massive way um, and every day. And actually, they say you should call twice a day to all three, your two senators and your local representative. Um, this is where it comes. And I think some of the marches are important because people need to see it, but the marches cannot be the only thing that you do. So the Women's March, for example, now has generated this movement called Indivisible, which is to sustain that work. Um, I think our voices. In fact, let me just end on this. I was talking to USAID people and you know the United States have invested a lot of money in different countries to help them build up civil society, right? Just so that people um, have these civil organizations that help them understand what are their rights, um, how do they um, organize to get access to their rights, um, how do they speak up, how do they get a place at the table of their society. And I said, isn't it ironic because this whole situation will test how strong civil society really is in the United States. Because civil society is actually an export of the United States. It's really, you know, where it's founded and, you know, where it's part of our culture and it's just really uh, indigenous to American culture. And we try to teach that overseas. Um, and, uh, but no, it's really a test of, um, are we really, other than just active in, 
in uh, lobbying, for example, or active in social service? Um, do we know how to use our voice? So I think what is most important for young people is this is a time to be very engaged and active. You know, you have to gain the knowledge. Um, you have to make your voice known. Now going to open up the floor to our first audience question for Dr. Wu. I was just wondering um, if you could explain maybe some key figures in your life who helped you and guided you um, throughout decision processes, maybe mentors or close friendships. How did you foster those and maintain those? Um, so there are a few people in my life whose values I just want to emulate. So the Marinos sisters who taught me from grade 1 to grade 12, uh, they were missionaries. Uh, they were the most sort of can-do people. Uh, tremendous compassion, but also tremendous voice. Um, they're not sort of like the, the sisters who just go around in the background. Um, they had no problem standing up to power. Um, and, and also they were full of joy. I think, so from, from them, I sort of have a sense that uh, faith also requires true joy. They are cheerful people. They want us to be cheerful. Another one was my nanny who joined the family eight years before I was born. And she was sold as a servant girl in China uh, because her father died and they were poor. She's now 98 years old. So she and I were very, very close. And I always learned to look at the world in terms of how people treat servants. Um, and she had a tremendous sense of justice. Um, and she would always give her money away to people she thought was even had less, and herself was always a servant. Uh, can speak truth to power, and uh, just and a perfectionist. Uh, so those were two very early, you know, from the time I was five or six through my uh, teenagehood. And then when I went to Purdue, um, what I had there were not so much role models as people who took me in. So the Catholic Church there, uh, recognizing that I was just a student there without any family, um, they were there for me, you know, Thanksgiving, Easter. Uh, they went to all my banquets. Um, they became my family, and I think that gave me a sense of what church meant, um, that it was family, that they, um, it takes in sort of a person who would have nothing else to offer, you know. Um, and so that was a very important sense of church. And then I had mentors who made me go into jobs when I felt like, you know, like I don't know anything about this, why? why. So they were people who saw more in me, and surprisingly, all of these people have very strong sense of faith. You know, the Marinos sisters, of course. The provost at Purdue was a very devoted Jewish person um, and really uh, did a lot for the Catholic Church at Purdue, too. My nanny, didn't, was, my nanny was sort of a Buddhist, but um, she, every morning she would get up and she would take a, a couple of sticks of incense. She would go to the window kneel down, bow her head to the floor, and thank the heavens and the earth. And this is a person who is a servant, but she has such an incredible sense of gratitude. <laughs> and uh, so these were the people. So I had people who really uh, helped me and gave me hospitality and loved me. Um, I would say I've never met a woman dean, for example, before I became one. 
um, you know, so I didn't have role models or mentors who did a certain job and I wanted that job and they took me through that. Not like that, but people who really, uh, yeah, hospitality and love are people who live with such strong values. Um, their faith, actually, their sense of the divine is a very important reason why they act certain ways. Yes, um, so there's times when we're trying to change ourselves or trying to learn new things, and usually when we take a step to a new journey, it's always the hardest step is the first one. So I just wanted to ask, um, when, for you personally, on days when you have no motivation, you just want to stay in bed or you just want to waste away the day, so what motivates you to continue on on that first step into a new life? Yeah, we all have those days when you're really tired and and so on. I think, um, I don't know, perhaps, the sense that if somebody did that to me, um, how I would feel. Um, so I always have this thing, I don't know where it comes from, is I don't like to let people down. Um, I'm pretty straightforward. I am, I have very high standards of people. Uh, but most of it, I just have a sense of if I don't carry out my part, how would it affect other people? I think that's what carried me through. I think there's also a time when you really do know that you're running on empty. Um, and when you're running on empty, showing up is not good enough. Um, and nowadays, I actually do know um, uh, when I could be actually counterproductive. Uh, when there's nothing left in me. So those are the days when I call in sick. And I'm really sick. I may not have a cold. I may not have the flu. But I'm running on complete empty. And you have to know the difference between, oh, I didn't sleep enough this weekend because I you know, shouldn't have gone to this and I shouldn't have gone to that. Like my son would tell me, Monday, oh, I feel crappy. And you know why? Because starting Friday, I did this, and Saturday I did this, and then Sunday I did this. So Monday, of course, you feel crappy. Uh, but, um, but when you're running on empty, like in my job sometimes too, it's just that there was so much traveling. We changed time zones so many times. Um, and, um, you know, you've been running on three or four hours of sleep for a period of several days. You know you're about just to crash. Um, so I think it's, number one, knowing the difference uh, between sort of like uh, that you're really running on empty um, or that, you know, we didn't manage our parties really well. And the second thing is also when you do something like that, just to have some sense of what is the impact on other people. Um, and I hope that, you know, once or twice it's okay, but if you never have impact on people when you don't show or whatever it is, that's not a good statement. Um, so those are the things that keep me going. Just, just, and that also I couldn't ask people to be, to act in a certain way if I don't challenge myself to do that. But I think this starts off with the key of knowing whether you're running on empty or that, right, just like I said, didn't manage your priorities really well. I was just, you didn't really get a, a lot of opportunity to talk about how you instill hopes and dreams and you sounded like you had sons and how you define expectations for them in that sense, like do you, you know, involved with your husband or 
equal parts husband chapel or along those lines? Yeah, hopes and I never tried to develop hopes and expectations for my two sons. Um, yeah, they have to come into those themselves. Um, I, my younger son right now is, has finished all of his PhD coursework and he's having serious questions as to whether he wants an academic culture. Academic cultures actually can be very isolating. It could be actually pretty small. So he is taking a year off to think. Um, and I know if somebody young come to me for advice, I will have things such as, oh, you're so far along, you know, you have a lot of sunk costs, go for it. Even if you don't want to go for an academic culture, get your PhD, you need it in the future. I mean, those are the things that mothers say. Those are the things that a very pragmatic person say. Uh, so I've never said none of those things and will not. And actually now I've come to accommodation. This is a son who prays a lot. He prays more than I do. And I thought, mm, God has been talking to him. I better not get in the way. <laughs> um, and the type of sort of like to be practical and sunk cause and all those things, are they rational? Yes. Should people hear it some of the time? Yes. But are those the most important priorities? No. Um, and so I don't set expectations for my son, my husband's. Actually, if I do, it'd be scary for them. Um, but what I did when I uh, had to decide on coming, no, before I decide, before the Notre Dame question was in front of me, there were these Notre Dame people showing up. And I actually was at um, one of the universities doing a three-week um, continual education type of course. And I had to think through what I want for my life. Um, I was still at Purdue. Um, I knew that, you know, I was at a crossroads. Should I be an administrator? Um, uh, you know, what should I do? And I absolutely cannot answer those questions. Just cannot. I three weeks every day after class, you know, these are no homework type of class. I would just go and say, go do my thinking. There was no answer. But the very last day, um, a question popped into my head was, what do you want for your boys? And the answers just came. And I didn't have to even think about it. The three things I want for my boys, number one was that, that they know th their blessings, that they're never dismissive and do not take for granted the blessings that they have. The second thing is that, that they will work hard to develop those blessings and to honor God by developing those blessings. And the third thing I wanted for them is that they would never use their blessings to put people down. They would never use their blessings to be um, arrogant um, or disrespectful. That, those were the three answers. I don't know where the question came from. I didn't know where the answers came from, but they were as clear as night, day. Yeah, just, <laughs> just, they, just know your, that they know their blessings, that they work on their blessings, because God gave those blessings to them for a reason. And the third is that to not be arrogant, to not be a jerk, to not put down people because of their blessings. And that has been sort of the principles we raised them on. Um, so those were the expectations. And for myself, just like I said, I never planned to be um, the director of the MBA program at Purdue. I never even know what a provost office do when I was asked to be a, a associate executive vice president. And I, 
was not aiming to be a dean. I was not aiming to be the president of CEO. Um, my expectations was just, it's a dumb thing to say. When I take on a job, I take it very seriously. Um, yeah, I just, just like I said, I don't know where it came from. I just didn't want to let people down. And it's, uh, it's a commitment that I think have been the, the engine for all of these positions that I've gotten. Um, I think that when I was board member at CRS, um, I really worked hard, I prepared, um, I read my materials, um, I make sure that uh, you know things are thought out and that they're thoughtful. Uh, and I think because of that, that's why I became a candidate for this um, position. But it was as small as that. And that is when you have a job to do, um, I know a lot of people just think of your job as like, yeah, they give me a paycheck, they don't treat me well. Nobody says thank you. Um, whatever it is, the new sort of disconnected feelings people have for their jobs, um, I never felt that. Uh, so I only had very few organizations that I worked for. I was at Purdue, I uh, graduated from my PhD, then I had two failed entries. I worked for General Motors and I hated every minute of it. And I knew I hated it. Um, it was just a misfit with me. Um, I had a boss who was um, an alcoholic. I didn't know it. But what he said in the morning would not jive with what he said at night. And he would create messes and I would have to clean up the messes. Um, and it was the days before they have Excel spreadsheets, so if you change numbers, they're very painful. You have to take them through all of the financial statements. And um, I didn't know what was wrong, but I didn't know that, that I was not happy um, in that job at all. Uh, and then one night when I was driving home, it was wintry Ohio evening, and I went into a ditch. And it was before there were cell phones. Um, and I had to flag down a stranger to take me home. And I asked myself, why are you doing this? So I quit after six months. And I'm not a quitter. Then the second one was I became, joined a very big consulting firm. It was a spin-off of the Boston Consulting Group, which is a very big deal thing. And I thought that's what I liked, and that was to be a consultant. It was very big deal, and uh, we stayed in the Watergate Hotel in Washington, D.C., which is very expensive. And, you know, and we worked in very big numbers, hundreds of millions of dollars um, in the projects. But then I traveled so much, I was a newlywed, I would leave on Monday at 4 a.m. in the morning, come back on Friday. Um, and every Sunday night, I would be crabby. Um, and it was really kind of lonely to be on the road five days a week. So I knew that was not for me. I did that for a year and a half. And then I went back to Purdue. So since then, I was at Purdue for many years. Then I was at Notre Dame for 13 years. Then I was at Ceres for five years. And I never wanted to leave the place. I never wanted to leave Purdue. I didn't want to leave Notre Dame. And it was hard to leave Ceres, but it was the right thing to do because I live away from home. I don't know where the question started. 
Oh, but it was about hopes and expectations. So I never had hopes and expectations of being a CEO, to tell you the truth. I never had, never thought I would be a dean. I thought that was, you know, these were really jobs that never thought of myself in it. But there was only one thing I did was whatever, whenever I had a job, I really take it seriously. Okay, it's, it's somewhat related to the, this point about um, kind of your, seeing how what you do affects other people as part of your motivation for kind of doing your job. I'm, I'm a grad student now trying to finish my dissertation on this, you know, this topic that doesn't really seem to really affect anybody. Um, and so I have a hard time finishing um, or working. You know, like, I know I just need to get out of here, so that's kind of what gets me, gets me out of the bed most of the time. But, um, I mean, like, in those moments in which, like, you're, I'm sure, like, even in all the work that you've done, like, there's some things you're doing that you don't really see or it's not super clear how what it's doing is connected to, you know, is really impacting a lot of people. Um, that's something that's really important for me. I want to know that what I'm doing has some kind of purpose and meaning. Um, <coughs> But in those moments, like, how do you, what goes through your mind? Is, it, is this just kind of an act of faith that you're doing? You don't kind of see how it fits in the whole, but in the in the whole picture of things, but you just kind of do it anyway? Or do you have, what, are your, what are your thoughts about those types of things? So when I say you have to understand your consequences on other people, I'm not saying necessarily, is this work that you're doing saving the world? Um, I mean, that clearly is important, but more sort of like, how does what I do affect my major professor? How does what I do affect the person who therefore, who needs my input, but I'm gonna be three days late and that person will be four days late? Uh, so it's even small things sort of like, who are we to each other um, in these situations? Now, the problem with the PhD program is, uh, and I've directed a lot of PhD students, um, a, a good major professor actually at the beginning will query a lot of things just because a major professor sometimes have a better sense of where that journey leads to. But even then, um, it's a journey of exploration into territories that you've never been to. Um, and sometimes you have to go deep to know that, oh boy, this may be kind of like a pseudo, you know, dead end uh, in terms of sort of like its potential applicability that you can see. Um, and at that point, I don't think it's totally unacceptable to say, you know, we just need to cap this and then move on, you know, because that itself is part of the learning um, is, you know, you talk about the gambler, to know when you hold, when to run, when to whatever it is. Um, Kenny Rogers, huh? You guys are probably too young to know that song and the lyrics are far from it now. So I don't think it's totally unacceptable to say, you know, sometimes you could actually be losing interest in your own study. Um, that happens too. Or sometimes you just say, okay, so what when I'm done with this? What does it matter? Um, and part of that, I think, a PhD um, journey is that is part of the learning. Um, how to fashion questions to which the answers could have actual applicability. And you may not necessarily catch it in your first try, which is your PhD dissertation. So I wouldn't say to be too hard on that. Um, and 
in that case, you're already into a dissertation stage. I think you should finish it. But it doesn't mean that, therefore, you don't have any um, contributions to other people. Um, and never forget the people who are in your life. That's the first round of people to have impact on. Um, the second thing is, I don't know whether my dissertation really means that much. I study market followers, low business share businesses, and see how they should win. Well, it seems to be relevant, but I don't know how many businesses really took my advice, honestly. <laughs> right? But it did sort of foster my own thinking that led to other things and so on. So I think that part is okay. I, I think that it's also a wrong-minded thinking to say that I'm not in a profession, a profession serving the poor, the sick. You know, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a social worker. I'm not a development, international development person. I'm not working at Catholic charities. I'm not doing anything for humankind. I think that's wrong-headed thinking. Um, I think that any work that you do, um, you know, like the financial services, people think financial services are awful. I think that there are a lot of financial services which are awful. Uh, but financial services themselves are not awful. Uh, people need retirement planning. Are you those who are really responsible? Right now, the regulation that they say Trump might undo, I think it's harder to undo than just Trump wanting it to be gone, is to mandate financial planners to offer recommendations which are good for the, benefit, for the clients rather than good for themselves. Because in a lot of different funds that, that these uh, fund managers can choose, they could choose a fund which gives them a lot of fees uh, rather than really has performed well. So they don't necessarily, you know, up to this set of law which is now in place, they were not required to choose the best for the clients. They could choose what is best for themselves. And, you know, that is ridiculous. Um, so there is a set of law that says, when now you choose, you have to choose what is best for the clients, not just what gives you the highest fees. Um, and you know the financial services are too complicated. It limits choice. Yeah, of course it limits choice. Um, but but don't we need financial planners who would think for the clients? And I happen to have one of those who do think for us, rather than people who are just greedy. So I think that in all professions, all legitimate professions. Um, I think there are ways to really serve God and serve people if we do those things right. Um, and don't let people down. I think that's part of it. So I think your dissertation is fine. It's part of the learning um, of knowing sort of the next piece of research that you do. What have you learned that you don't want to repeat again? My husband did a piece of research that lasted, that he would put down, he wouldn't do. Um, and by then I had my PhD, and every year he said he was going to do it. We would postpone our vacations because, you know, he has to work on his PhD, and da-da-da-da. I finally gave him an ultimatum. I said, if you don't finish your PhD, it's okay with me. But if you're going to finish your PhD, it has to be done within a year, okay, because he's worked on it for seven years. So people have these relationships with their, with their dissertation, which is sort of like, and I was just talking to them, sometimes adult life from 25 to 35 is like being given the canvas after you have completed all of your course requirements and say, now this is your white canvas. You can put on it whatever you want. Do something with it. This is your signature, your work, your whatever it is. And it scares people half to death. 
you know? Like, what do I put on this canvas? Um, you know, whatever I put on it would just disfigure it. Um, and whatever I put on it, if it's my work, it wouldn't be worthy of great thought. It wouldn't be great thought worthy of anyone. Whatever it is. So actually, that's a very difficult period. My advice to you is finish. <laughs> finish and move on. <laughs> and with that, we will conclude our question and answer session. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>